Right. Hello, Jack. Welcome to the podcast. Um, yeah, this is, I guess you're the second person we're interviewing or I'm interviewing for the, for the podcast. So that's, that's pretty cool. Thanks for joining. Um, could you give, uh, yeah, a quick intro about yourself, what you're up to and uh, what interests you in the, in the crypto or tokenomics space? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, Florian. I'm a big fan of the tokenomics style at a Substack uh, reader and uh, a bit of intro about myself. Uh, I study officially, I study philosophy, politics and economics at Oxford, but I spend a lot of my time building products and uh, companies. So you can basically call me a tech startup guy. Uh, before going to Web3, I had a biotech startup and I also worked um, in product and sales for early stage AI SaaS company as well. So uh, basically my mental models are, uh, especially as you can tell in our conversation, very much draws parallels from the social sciences, uh, first principles thinking, and also some product frameworks uh, from Web2, which is the world that I was in. Um, and currently in Web3, I uh, right now I'm working for uh, Freak, which is a company that tokenizes real world assets and uh, bring green bond uh, on chain. Okay, yeah. Um, what, what, type of, what type of real world assets? I saw the website and was kind yeah. of, yeah, it sounded interesting, but I didn't really um, look into it. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So uh, we focus, so we think from first principles, mm -hmm. what is the value proposition of DeFi? So DeFi is a very low transaction cost and instant settlement and basically very low barrier to entry, right? Everybody in the world, you can participate. There isn't much of a, uh, of a banking barrier, uh, so to speak, uh, compared to TradFi. And we also look at TradFi, where um, all of the above mentioned benefits do not exist, basically. And, and so the question becomes, what sector of what sector, what niche within TradFi is DeFi 10x better than TradFi? So we decided, uh, we did some research and we thought that it's actually infrastructure as an asset class that is massive and uh, filled with a lot of intermediaries and brokers that takes up a lot of that takes up a lot of transaction cost. And the founder of Freak, um, his business background, family background is also in infrastructure financing. So there's, a, uh, so there's a good founder market fit there. So what we do is we basically help uh, project developers and infrastructure funds. We help them refinance operational assets. Um, so imagine there's a dam that's already been built and this fund 10 years ago uh, invested either in equity or bond to build this dam. Now, 10 years have passed and water is going through, electricity has been generated and cash flow is very secure. Uh, the traditional way for the investor to get liquidity is to shop around, talk to investment banks, talk to merchant banks. However, uh, the market is very inefficient and these transaction costs take up anything from you know, eight to 15% and even more in emerging markets asset. Now we bring these assets, I mean, tokenize uh, these bonds, uh, tokenize them into bond token, and uh, we bring DeFi liquidity. So uh, we bring sustainable yield DeFi. You know, yield is no longer Ponzinomics, and it's actually you know uncorrelated returns from the secure cash flow, and it's also green because these are all um, sustainable energy infrastructure. So in a way, then you're 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 trying to bring the assets on chain and represent them with their yields. 
So we actually bring the, the debt, we actually bring the bond part in TradFi, mm. which is tokenized the bond part. But the uh, roadmap, our vision is definitely to, uh, so we start with uh, basically refinancing already operational assets, right? Yeah. The next step in our game is to finance building new assets and building new solar farms and new sites. That's a lot trickier uh, because it involves a lot of stakeholders and from our perspective, it's actually mostly a trust issue. There's a lot of attempts to tokenize real world assets or to bring real world assets to DeFi. And a lot of it really miss the crux of the game, which is uh, if you have, you know, if you run, if you have your own native token, you, you get these validate, validators, um, uh, mechanism, et cetera. In an average participant, either retail or institution cannot really participate. And it just makes everything seem dodgy as well. Whereas for us, we kind of underwrite or we it's we kind of internalize the risk and just say, right, you know, we only work with blue chip funds and project developers with the right, you know, we take on the compliance um, cost, we set up our own standard, we go on the ground, make sure everything is um, as it is, right? Um, so yeah, start with operational and then we'll do uh, building up new assets. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's super interesting. You know, I I, um, I wrote this uh, piece or two pieces actually on on Citadel, and um, yep. I don't know if you've seen that they're this uh, company in Singapore, and their plan is to bring all sorts of uh, real estate assets onto on on, on chain, right? And um, yep. I guess they're they're attempting a similar process where they um, spot them like in the real world, and then yep. um, yeah try to then acquire them into a holding company or something like that and then bring them on chain via that and the interesting part was actually like this whole process it's cool and and once we have that that's that's pretty nice we'll have a good piece of infrastructure but then once that process is at a stage um where you can leverage then this infrastructure i.e that you have tokenized real estate you have these tokens then it becomes yeah. really interesting because you can you can like funnel that into all sorts of DeFi applications, right? Yeah. And uh, I, I guess that's probably also something you were thinking about then, um, not only to have that debt, but but also, uh, yeah, I guess like some some other applications for it in the DeFi. Exactly. World. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's composability in DeFi, right? Yeah. And uh, I guess slightly different from Citadel. Uh, Citadel acquires new asset, whereas we just uh, we can think of us as initially as in just an investment bank, right? That bridges between TriFi and DeFi. Uh, but composability is top of our list when it comes to us setting the contract standard or thinking about um, how to make sure there's secondary liquidity for token holders. Um, a key value proposition for DeFi. Like if you if you ask me, why would investors want to buy a bond token that you know that tokenizes a real world asset? Well. Uh, you know, for institutions, there's already a lot of workflows and brokers and banks in place. So there has to be something that's 10x better than a status quo for them to switch, right? And what we observe is because value is encoded in lines of code, a smart contract in DeFi. And so, you know, if you, uh, for a new protocol, for a new um, uh, lending protocol to accept these tokens as collateral, you don't need to go through the whole uh, you know, ah, okay, what's your, what's the software stack that your bank uses? You know, that's, that's the TradFi process and the DeFi is so much easier. And so the future that we see is, you know, you can get people betting on yields, right? You can have 
um, these bonds, you can, you can have people packaging uh, financial products on top of these bonds. Um, and, you know, I think it's true that these products exist in TriFi, but they are reserved only for like large institutions. You know, um, if you're Blackstone, you can still get packaged, uh, uh, structured financial products if you work with Goldman Sachs, but it's going to take, you know, three, three months. They're going to hire, um, they're going to build you for, I don't know, 100 hours for the Harvard graduate analyst to, to, to do the work. Whereas for yeah. us, it's plug and play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, that I mean, that, that's also the interesting proposition for, um, for projects like Citadel because they make it accessible for anyone to, to buy like whatever their risk appetite is and whatever their um, amount of money that they, that they have on the side that they, they can kind of put into this. Um, so yeah, that's, I guess th those are like the, yeah, in some way I, I called it like this, the, 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 a Trojan horse. There's lots of Trojan horses, I guess, in, in yeah. the whole DeFi world, but um, th this, this could be one in uh, getting more people to use it because then if that enables you to, to invest in real estate and like, or in infrastructure, then um, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty cool thing. It would probably get more people to join. Yeah. Anyway, cool. So um, without, you know, we, the, the actual idea of getting you on and talking to you was a paper that you, that you wrote, I guess, for, for your unit degree or as part of your, uh, um, yeah, <laughs> Oxford studies, whatever you do there um, in, this, in this different field. And you, uh, yeah, you called it the three tokenomic problems and a productivity, productivity linked tokenomics design. And I thought that was, that was quite interesting. Can you maybe like give us a, like a really brief explanation of what that um, paper is about? Sure, yeah. So, you know, as the title suggests, there are two parts to this paper. There's the problem part and there's the sort of an attempt to solve the problem. Um, the problem part basically consists of uh, what I like to identify the three tokenomics problem that's overarching in crypto and DeFi right now. Um, so, you know, if you look at the, the, the past bull market, uh, it's true that we get a lot of new tokenomics design, but I just, but, but sometimes like the, the motivation from uh, for me to write the paper was just thinking from first principles, like, um, you know, it's nice that we get, uh, you know, Olympus POL um, or we get a phase PCV, but like behind all of that, like if I were a founder, just how would I design the tokenomics, uh, you know, from first principles, uh, from scratch? And so it just comes down to several variables, right? You know, what's the initial token supply? How much of that is going to be circulating? How should I allocate my token and what's the token emission schedule? So all of it, I think right now founders um, and designers and investors and community usually just resort to, right, let's look at, you know, what other protocols have done. And it's very much sort of um, thinking by reference rather than thinking from first principles. So more specifically, the three tokenomics problem uh, concern uh, token allocation, token emission and token value. So if you think about it, it's sort of an order of abstraction as well. So token allocation, uh, as I suggest, you know, we can go a lot more detail on this, but basically it's just thinking how much to allocate to insiders, how much to allocate to uh, you know, liquidity miners, et cetera, uh, with the ultimate goal of um, aligning incentives, right? And this incentive can be defined as, you know, driving, uh, maybe driving total transaction volume of a particular vote or it can be number of users, depends on how you define it. So that's the first problem. 
uh, token allocation. The second problem is token emission. And token emission is really interesting, particularly because Curve, right? Curve has taken a lot of the um, narrative energy right now. Um, everybody's talking about the Curve Wars. And the, and the killer app that Curve has is basically Curve Emission. So I thought that uh, we haven't, you know, the community hasn't really thought about um, how we should do emission, you know, and it's a question of uh, uh, how many tokens are emitted at a particular time and how quick, which is the time question. So what to emit, well, how much to emit and uh, when to emit. And if you set your emission curves in a different way, that's going to affect, um, it's going to affect your, the ultimate, you know, the ultimate goal that you're defining as well, right? And current token, Current token emission designs are prone to, to manipulation. And that's the second problem that I identified. Um, the third problem is token value and how token value detaches uh, from real value creation. Uh, and what I mean by that is basically you get tokens are trading you know, 10x, 15x, or 20x more than economically, theoretically, they should trade at. And the way we theoretically arrive at a fair price of a token is you can say it's, you know, the two ways, right? There's sort of market-driven value, which is basically just marginal benefit of using the token is equivalent to the marginal cost, which is the price. Uh, that's a more, you know, if we believe in market equilibrium. The second more intrinsic value investment philosophy um, way to calculate token value is to look at uh, net present cash flow value, right? How much is, the, is this token generating? Uh, and my point is basically just, there's a lot of speculative token holders that once they hold tokens, they don't actually contribute to the protocol. Um, and this contribution can be, you know, it can be actual community contribution or it can be economic contribution, such as using the protocol itself. And so when that problem happens, you get rent extraction, you know, token holders just, they just, suck benefit, suck marginal benefits out of the, out of the um, protocol. So these three are the, are the token, are the tokenomics problems. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, um, I guess like, uh, you know, I read, I read through it and I was like interested in, in a, yeah, in a few things. Um, one of them on the emission side was like where you said setting emission curves without experimentation is testing and production. And that's obviously something, you know, software people, uh, know that that's not a good thing to do. Um, but obviously, I guess, and I, I, talk, I talked about this on the recent podcast as well with Javier, uh, how, do you, how do you get around this, right? You can't simulate everything and all of your ideas. So what's kind of the, the best way to, to experiment with like emissions and, 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 and try this out? Like wait, what's, the, what's the dev or the test environment that we, that we could have to, to try out things like that? So that's interesting. So um, I personally don't know much about token engineering, uh, just a disclaimer, but I think one of the ways to do it is probably run agent-based simulation and test different, different emission schedule. Um, so I don't know, products like Gottlieb or there's another one coming up, Chaos Lab. Um, these products might be useful. Um, if a emerging protocol doesn't want to use these products, you know, they could be expensive. Um, then I guess 
a simple way to do is just explain from first principles why you chose this over another. Um, I think a lot of white papers or documentation just take it for granted. You know, we yeah, admit, yeah. we have this emission curve, but like, why? Um, so how would you I, do that? Like, and I think from, from first principles, so like maybe like you know, you've been you've been saying that a lot, and I I wanted to touch upon it, but maybe now's a good point. Like, can yeah. you like walk us through how this like first principle tokenomics design in your mind would would work? Like, what kind of questions would you ask? In and um, especially yeah, maybe let's start with emissions and and see how that would how you would think that through. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So um, and and I. And this would actually lead to the second section of the paper, right? The productivity-linked yeah. tokenomics, uh, yeah. which is a um, solution, a suggestion that I came up with. And obviously it's a draft. So I welcome listeners uh, to uh, give us comments as well. Um, so I guess when we say from first principles, it basically means like from the ground up, from facts, right? And also thinking about the, uh, it's, it's very purpose-driven design. So what's the purpose of a tokenomics design? And it depends on, you know, if I were a, let's say a lending protocol, then I would want maybe total transaction volume, you know, people lending and borrowing and you come up with a proxy that sort of uh, measure the weighting for each. Basically, I, I just want as many people to lend and borrow on my protocol as possible. That's the thing that incentivizes. So given that is the purpose, then we think about, right, um, and if we have a native token, then how should we design it? So when it comes to emission, um, I, you know, the first question is emission quantity, right? So how many new tokens are available at a particular time? And the way I think about it is, right, you know, relative to total supply, how many, how, what's the percentage of new supply is emitted at a particular time? And why is and, it needed, right? Like what? Like, why do we need to emit new tokens at all? Like that, that that's probably one of the, the questions, right? Like should we start it with, I guess, in, exactly. in, in a thought process like that, right? Exactly. You know, that percentage can be 0%. And if it's, if there's zero new token uh, emitted, kind of similar to the Bitcoin dynamics, right? Kind of that, the, the concept that there's fixed supply, obviously Bitcoin has a different nuance there because the uh, miners have to mine Bitcoin. Uh, but, you know, you can have a similar dynamic for this imaginary tokenomics design we're talking about as well. Um, and I guess the argument for the argument against 0% emission is basically that it's the same argument that central banks have for why, you know, inflation shouldn't be 0%. It's because if you have some, some, some form of slight inflation, it encourages people to spend the money and not to hold um, the token. And, and, and so, as you can tell, um, even like we just posed one question, right? Emission quantity, how many new tokens are available at a particular time? And we already see like so many different um, possible paths. And within each path, there are different implications. If you set 10%, the implication is, you know, that's quite high inflation judging from, you know, if we look at comparable protocols right now uh, that are dominant in DeFi. If we set a zero percent, then you get this theoretical counter argument of you know people are going to hold the token, they're not going to spend it, and so there, there's so many criteria and decisions to consider that's missing in current um, discussion. So sort of yeah, that's yeah. the point that I'm driving at. Yeah, no, no, I, I I totally get that, and and I guess it 
it all comes down, and I hope we can talk about that in a bit about this, uh, you know, the suggestion that you've made, and I've I've written about that a little bit as well, and um, it's really this like, what are you actually trying to achieve with it, right? That that like drives this emission. So um, a thought that I had or that we had with tokenomics that was launching our token was um, to to think through kind of how do we actually want to create this token, right? And um, in our mind, it was connected to content because we've thought about this flywheel, right? So we have, we, we produce this content and the content that we create is then the gravity that brings in more people to join our DAO, potentially new clients that want to do consulting gigs with us, um, premium subscribers to content and stuff like that. They would come in and the, the content is kind of doing that. But and in order to, to keep people to produce content, you could uh, issue a token for every piece of content that is created. Like, so every bit of value that you create, and that would kind of be your emissions, right? And so those emissions would be ultimately tied to the, the this, this like basic creation of value, right? And so they could be higher if we produce a lot of content and that then um, on the other side turns into cash flows or revenues that we, that we achieve, then uh, the emissions could be higher. But if we don't produce a lot of content, they should be lower, right? So it's ultimately like tied to something. And I guess that is, that's, I hope what you really like mean with this, like thinking from first principles, like where starting at the facts of what you really want to achieve and then, then, then tipping it that way, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, the design that you mentioned, it's very much in line of the spirit of the productivity linked tokenomics design as yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas, in this case, productivity is defined as uh, new content uh, produced, and you know you can even have a more nuanced definition of that. You know, it can be um, a weighted average of a piece of you know a, a let's like let's say a user produces two pieces of content, one piece goes viral, and the other piece like nobody reads it. So yeah. you, you kind of need like a you need an indicator, you need a proxy to Sort of calculate the weighted average of that, and and yeah. and that could be the ultimate, um, uh, the ultimate purpose or the ultimate KPI that your tokenomics is driving for, um, and then from then when we talk about emission, then um, yes, exactly. You know when the system is, when the whole system and the whole DAO is productive, then uh, the DAO issues more tokens and it rewards um, creators uh, proportionately as well. Um, I guess that's an intuitive design, um, although I did mention some concerns and limitations in the paper as well. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can get, um, I guess it was a Matthew effect and some other things. Yeah. Um, so maybe we can, yeah, let's, let's maybe get it, get into that. So the Matthew effect is roughly like this, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer a scheme. Is that like a, <laughs> I'm not in academia, so I've, not sure if this yeah. was like a um, a fair summary of what it is, but yeah, no, that's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. It's uh, it's the reason why it's called Matthew is just because it comes from the Bible, uh, and, yeah. and I think the Bible the quote was um, the the people who the people who are receiving a lot they will continue to receive, and people who haven't they will be sort of ignored. Uh, I forgot the I forgot the exact quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's something you would have like a lot in in like a um, proof of stake systems, right? So the ones that yeah. have a lot of capital, they can um, yeah they can they can stake that and then receive more from it. Um, 
so that's a problem that you also see in this like productivity link tokenomics design um yep scheme yeah exactly that's um, a problem that um so i actually just made i posted a twitter thread this afternoon um so unsurprisingly or surprisingly uh ryan Wilkins at mazari actually addressed this back in 2020 mm-hmm. and he wrote a blog post on Masari called power and wealth and crypto economies uh, and, and crypto economies and the point he was driving at is precisely sort of these this idea of the rich gets richer the the um and more specifically he was addressing pos systems where initially allocated um, token holders if they choose to stake the token all the way through then um at a time long enough, like they will basically become, they will basically hold a majority of, of, of tokens. Um, and then you also get this collusion dynamic between them as well. And in a sense, you know, if they collude with other whales, whale validators, they can just rewrite the whole chain. <laughs> yeah. So a way to address that, like not on the blockchain level, maybe, but like on a more on a protocol level, I was thinking about the design that we just talked to, you know, talked about like that for, for us at that, um, tokenomics that we would issue new tokens for content. And maybe these tokens would give you governance rights and they would maybe give you a share of the revenue if you stake them. Um, but if it is the case that you need to work, create content to receive them, then your share over time would get diluted, right? And and also your governance share. So if you have, and especially if you have like a, a high inflation, let's right? say so we produce a lot of content and we produce a lot of new tokens, we'd have sort of a high inflation of our token. And that would then over time dilute um, your governance power if you stop doing something. So it actually solves this problem of rich getting richer and poor getting poorer because you're, you're churning out so many tokens, but you're tying it to something that needs to be created. So the rich can't just stake their tokens and, and receive more. They have to actually also do something. And if they don't, after a year or two, they're... Um, voting power or their yields will be halved, um, really have this halving every year or something like that. I mean, you could definitely program this into that. Would that be a solution to the potential, like to this Matthew effect? Uh, yes, I know. On the emission so side, I think, yeah. I think, I think that that definitely solves the um, idle capital sort of, oh, well, this is very much in line of, <laughs> with the Marxist critique of capitalism as well, where, you know, he criticized how in capitalist and hyper-capitalist societies, you know, capital owners don't have to work and they just make more money of money. Um, I, I think that tokenomics design solves it. Uh, but another problem then becomes it kind of, it kind of disincentivizes early productive people to join it. Um, because they know that they have to continue to churn out valuable content, which could be good or bad. I, th- I think yeah. it's good on the aggregate level. It helps with fairness, but on the individual level, uh, maybe we can sort of caveat that design, right? Um, and the difference here is in my tokenomics design, I sort of assume that an agent, if you're productive, you will remain productive forever. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, right? And, and that's why I said my design is still vulnerable to Matthew's effect because a, you know, a good writer um, will 
presumably continue to write and continue to write good content and to have several hits. Um, so I guess maybe you can have a, maybe like a basic level of compensation or some, just some form that, that can incentivize regular good contribution. Um, otherwise you might see, you might see some high quality writers lose the interest or lose the energy, especially in writing, right? Where I think it's very much like a burst of creativity rather than a regular sprint of uh, yeah. like a regular jog of creativity. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. I guess like to solve this problem, you'd have to find this balance between regular incentivizing regular contribution. Um, but on the other side, also like retaining and attracting this early talent. Um, and and also getting them to to join in early before there's money to be made. Um, so yeah, that's something I think still for like for us still not to crack and think about kind of how how we could uh, how we could do this. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And especially when you tie in economic uh, when you're tying the price of the token itself, right? Then you get a sort of slightly more reflexive problem of right, what is how much is a tokenomics. DAO token worth. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's like highly or like semi-highly inflationary, then um, yeah, it's it'll be hard to achieve a high price in token. But on the other side, it would be like this. I mean, it would essentially be very much tied to in the intrinsic value of the token, right? Or or very close, right? And that that kind of brings me to this brings me to the second or one of the second problems that you stated in your paper, right? Um, so a quote again was, given that most protocols launch early in their product lifecycle, there's high uncertainty around the intrinsic value of protocol tokens, right? Um, I guess like that, that's definitely something. And because of that intrinsic value, it's hard to get people to like commit and join early on because because nobody knows what's going to happen like some people especially the founders they'd have a vision or an idea of of what could happen but uh nobody knows right so it's hard hard to um yeah link this link the token value to the to the real value creation but that kind of would be an attempt so but i'm, I'm still struggling with this balance maybe you can um kind of elaborate a little bit more on this uh on this second problem that you that you've stated in your paper yeah, uh, by by this you mean token token emission, right? No, we do, we just talked about token emission. I would now now like to like go into the token value um, side oh, where you right, said right. you know yes yeah with real value creation you have this incentive misalignment and um, yeah, yeah. therefore I guess it needs to be tied in some way to the in intrinsic value of the of the protocol. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think. I think we've sort of, in the crypto community, we've sort of accepted the norm that in the bootstrapping phase of a protocol, token values are like, are completely detached from its real value. And the reason why we've, we've accepted it is because we think it's like a, it's a necessary evil to incentivize early, early adopters, right? And you get this, there's yeah. a plenty of literature, plenty of blogs about the sort of um, S-curve network effects and how real utility plus token utility um, can help, you know, solving the code star problem. Um, I think 
I think that's all right. Like I see the, I see the, um, I see the valid argument, uh, but I just wonder if there is a way to, uh, because there is a lot of debt weight token holders, uh, and the Web two parallel for this is basically, you know, if you have a company and um, you get some early investors, but they are useless as the company scales, right? And somehow you need to buy them out. I, I think there is a similar dynamic here where some insiders or some early adopters, they might not necessarily help with scaling. Um, and so you get this another question of, right, how can we filter out, how can we reward early adopters, financially reward early adopters that are truly sort of true-hearted network participants rather yeah. than speculators who don't contribute to this. And I guess there are some already some attempts, you know, some do like auction mechanisms, sort of different types of initial token drop, like airdrops, right? If, if you look at Looks Rare, they airdropped it to power users of OpenSea, um, which is a good proxy value to measure, um, to predict how much NFT swap fees, uh, sorry, NFT transaction fees they would drive to Looks Rare if they use Looks Rare. Um, but obviously you also get this another problem of once you define a goal, once you define a KPI, then everybody's going to find some way to game the KPI. Um, yeah, that's they might do wash trading. Case. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, you know, for tokenomic styles uh, case, maybe you can have a, you know, very specific measurement of these KPIs. You have to write a 800 words, at least 800 words article, and it's had been submitted and receive sort of 10 likes or on Twitter or whatever. And so then you kind of solve this watch trading issue. And you also basically tell participants, tell writers, um, it's a minimum acceptable amount of uh, quality over quantity. Yeah, it needs to be linked to quality, right? That's, that's yeah. definitely something. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and then on the, um, on the, on the, on the third problem, then on the token allocation, um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you, you talked a little bit about like long-term, how do, how do you, um, allocate tokens for the long-term? Like that's another problem, I guess, that you could maybe go into for us. Yeah, definitely. So I don't have a very well thought out answer. I think, uh, I think my thinking right now has just been very um, analytical rather than prescriptive. Yeah. Uh, but the, an, an intuition I have is there should not be any preset allocation at all. Let's just like do this imaginary experiment where you only have initial supply and similar to the, again, similar to the Bitcoin dynamics or Ethereum pre-mine dynamics, you get miners, uh, which can be just, can be generalized as participants and users of this protocol. Uh, they have to do certain actions in order to, in order to gain a token. And we just sort of take it for granted that the initial state of affairs, you know, maybe there will be 10 agents uh, that participate in this um, initial round of mining or, you know, gaining tokens. And that will be the allocation. That'll be the initial token allocation. So there's no sort of hidden hand or there's no sort of like God view to allocate token supply. You just leave it to the market to decide. Um, that could be a good experiment to run. But how would you, I mean, how would you run this on a protocol level? 
Yeah, so it depends on what the protocol does. Um, I'm actually, when I, when I talked about this experiment, I was thinking more about L1s and just yeah. leaving it to like, to like dApps to, yeah. you know, to race and to uh, drive transaction volume. And then my L1 is going to allocate L1 tokens, native tokens to them. Yeah. I guess if it's a dApp or if it's a DAO, it could be, um, let's say you have a, similar to the mirror, right? Right race, right? You get this race. Uh, where you know you allocate the total supply of tokens, it can be let's say just for the sake of simplicity, 100 tokenomics DAO tokens, um, and you obviously you market it in advance early enough, and you get 100 writers that are competing and write uh, in order to you know gain a portion of the initial supply, and. That could be the way that you use token allocation. It's kind of similar to an, an, another parallel I draw, and sorry if I'm talking too abstract, is to think about initial token supply as sort of like a new continent. How do you decide, how, how do you divide land uh, on, a new, on a new continent? You know, let's say the colonizers of the North American, of, you know, of the United States, how do they decide how, how to divide the land? Well, whoever came first and whoever did productive work on that, you know, whoever built farms, built houses, then this land is yours. Um, it's a sort of similar spirit that I think we should, at least, I, I'm not sure if it, if it's robust across like all the different edge cases, you know, if it's, if it's completely safe and, you know, nobody can cheat, it's probably some way to cheat, but it could be a cool experiment to run. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. If you find out something, that, yeah, I mean, like, the right race is interesting. Like for the people who don't know, like, I don't know, like it was last year sometime mirror XYZ yeah. came out, which is kind of a decentralized medium. And they then allocated tokens, I guess. I, th I think they must've allocated to some people upfront. And then yeah. um, there was this race every week where you could submit what you wanted to write about and then people could allocate their tokens that they had received to you um, to then get a slot on the page so that you could get like a, um, a publication on Mirror. And um, I guess the problem with that was that only like their peers got the initial tokens. So for some, somebody like completely random to get in um, was quite hard and receive tokens. So that's something I guess you'd also have to have to balance with this kind of uh, mechanism but yeah pr proof of work seems to be the, the 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 best way right you can you can just bring it out there and then whoever contributes work he'll get some tokens and that's your allocation right it's no not not predefined or anything definitely i share your thoughts about mirror um i got into blogging fairly recently and when i looked at mirror that was amazing and you know i wanted to participate in right race but I don't have a large enough Twitter following. I'm like a new writer. I haven't got like yeah. a good portfolio to show. And that was difficult for me to, particip uh, to participate. So that definitely is a problem for a right race model that disincentivizes uh, small and emerging sort of users and participants. And on the other hand, maybe we can even push it further. Maybe that a protocol, maybe, maybe like how much a team should get in terms of token supply should not be determined at all. Maybe that what the team should at the bare minimum do is just to build out the infrastructure layer 
for this protocol, maybe, you know, set up website, Twitter account, whatever. And then everything else, like after that, like what products to launch, whatever, like that actually determine how much tokens the teams should be allocated. And the way to do so, and this determination is calculated mathematically via the curve, you know, so if it's a productivity linked design, then it will be, you know, since day zero, right, this protocol is life. And then the team, uh, the founders, the founding team, they have to do certain action, you know, that's productive by definition. And then the curve, you know, which is a smart contract, which is emits and allocates the proportional share of token supply. Um, that could be another extreme. Yeah, yeah. I guess the the problem, and I guess I, I think that's also one of the problems that you um, you know, we talked about the Matthew effect, but that's also one of the problems yeah. that you've stated in your in your piece is like how do you actually measure productivity in a good way, right? How do you how do you actually define that? And, and find out what, what, uh, what, how many tokens was that worth to create the website, the infrastructure and the, the initial protocol, Who, who's going to decide about that, right? If you say the founders shouldn't decide it, um, who else should, should define it? And I, I was thinking like the way uh, a few other protocols did, I know that Bankless DAO, when they launched their token, they airdropped all the tokens to, um, yeah, initial subscribers and readers and members and things like that. And then they had a Genesis proposal um, where they said that the the founders of the podcast they would get a certain allocation. And then it was kind of a it was kind of a fair launch. But the first proposal was basically to allocate a certain amount of tokens to um, the, the founders. But they didn't do it. Uh, they kind of did it democratically, right? So they distributed first, and then they decided. So maybe that could be an approach to that. If that it, makes sense. It definitely could be, although the founders would then run a risk, right? Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's still undetermined. Tokens, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, um, and it's a really good question that you raised about, uh, you know, how can we put a number into how much, you know, how much token is setting up a website worth? And that basically maybe that speaks to, maybe we need another curve. Like we need like a meta curve on top of the productivity design Token is token is token emission curve that that determines all the parameters, and then you get this sort of recursive loop that you know we say right we, we might as well we just have a human human designer that set parameters, and then right let's say you know um, the token emission is decided by this curve, but ultimately yes you know the parameters are still designed by humans, um, yeah. yeah that that definitely is a is a recursive problem. The problem still to be solved. Yeah. Okay. So I, maybe let's. I, I find it very interesting that you actually use the DAO example for this because, like, um, one of my collaborators who uh, worked with me on the on the curve design, uh, Christoph and Jack, they actually came up with this prototype, like their way of thinking about this productivity linked tokenomics design is in the context of decentralized science and how to reward researchers. Um, and you, it's, 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 it's interesting because there's actually two ways you can do this. Like the reward can be a native token or the reward can be an objective USDC terms, right? Yeah. And again, sort of, uh, you know, people need to think through this and not to just say, oh, and we're definitely going to use native token just because curve, the, the stable swap, you know, 
uh, Kafka protocol uses native token, and so it's good. Um, that's a problem in itself. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I guess like also an interesting thing to figure out. <laughs> still, yeah. um, lots of lots of things to still to figure out. So, I guess like then, th that's really sort of like your your conclusion from this, right? To to build this um, productivity linked tokenomics design. So look at the productivity and then answer um, the, the questions around uh, the, the, the value, the, the allocation, the emissions, but do it just based on that, right? Um, would that be like a fair summary, an Eli five of, uh, of, the, of the paper? Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, the explain like I'm five version of this will be if you, if you produce good work, you get rewarded. That's a short summary of it. <laughs> That's what the token does. So are there, I mean, you've, you've, you've done a fair bit of research on this and I read through a lot of the, the articles um, that inspired your paper. Are there protocols that, have, that like come close to having achieved something like that, that we could borrow from or that like are at the leading edge of, of doing something like that? Yeah, that's interesting. So I took a look. Um, I think the, the, the closest one is sort of uh, solidly. So the recent Phantom, um, Phantom AMM swap that attracts a lot of legends. Yeah. And the creator who now quit DeFi, um, Andre, he airdropped this AMM token to the top 20 TVR projects on Phantom, which is a yeah. L1. And the spirit is similar to this idea of productivity length design, right? Sort of you're rewarding um, already productive protocols um, on the same layer one, and you are placing a bet that because they were productive in the past, they are also going to be productive in the future. And hence you give them more of this token. And obviously then this slightly Ponzi dynamics comes in, right? Because these are early adopters and they also want the um, solidly to go up, the token price to go up. So they will keep using solidly, right? In order to drive transaction volume, which actually is good for solidly itself because that's ultimately what it wants, right? Well, they're the, bringing liquidity the and that's the, the goal, right? That's the value they, they provide is liquidity, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So I guess solidly is an example, but it's slightly more exceptional because it's a protocol on a layer one that rewards other protocols in the same layer one. Um, yeah. And it's different from the discussion we've been having so far, uh, where in our minds, we've always been imagining it's a protocol rewarding users, basically wallets, right? Rewarding wallets based on the past behavior. That's yeah. a slightly, slightly different thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but still, I mean, linked to something productive. So um, yeah. Yeah. And, and in the end, I, mean, I guess like, your paper was or is targeted quite generically, right? It's, it's like everybody could use this and apply this or think through this um, in these frameworks that you've given, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, I, you know, I've, I'm very intellectually honest. I'll say like, I still haven't figured out like what's the best design or like even, even the trade-off be... between designs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly, like there has to be trade-offs, um, but I think, when I when I wrote the paper, the intuition that comes to me is just like uh, forgetting about just very basic 
variable to sets, right? And you know, and and the fact that we forgot about token emission, token allocation, token value, this in collection is a problem. And hence, I you know, I came up the title of the three tokenomics problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, cool. I think it's uh, you know. I think it's a really timely piece and a lot of people are thinking about this at the moment. So, um, yeah, I think, I think, I think it's great putting this out there and it will help, um, more and more people to think this through. Um, and hopefully we'll drive more, I guess, like in innovation and experimentation, um, with this. And, and that's always a good thing. That's kind of the, you know, to, to the, what we, what we talked about in the, in the, in the, in the early part, what is this, like, how do you test in, in, in production it's it's bad form in a way but yeah. on the other side there's so many protocols that go out there and test stuff like like so solidly in phantom they just tried something yeah. we don't know if it's going to work we'll see in a year or so if that was a good idea to do it and i guess we don't in that sense we don't really have a test system or an accurate test system that really works in some way we just do it on the we, we do it more with like we'll get protocols to put it out there and test it in production even though it's bad form but it will help others to learn from that definitely yeah i mean i mean the fact that curve is way ahead of its time right like curve was launched in a time where um, amm was dominated by constant product um, and also amm gives out uh, rewards based on like this vanilla mechanism and then curve invented this new way of doing token emission and with a bribing effect on top of it. So I guess the yeah. lesson for protocol designers and founders is basically test and production if you can. Uh, if there isn't like extreme um, extreme ways that it, can, that it can go wrong, but obviously like think through the edge cases and, and, yeah. and try to protect those. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, one of the things that you're also interested in is stable coins. And maybe yeah. we can talk a little bit about that because yeah, um, I, I think that's stable coins are a really interesting topic and um, there's, there's a lot of innovation happening in that space too. So lots of new ideas being tested and evolved. Um, so what are your thoughts in general on, on like stable coins? Yeah, for sure. So, let me tell you why I got interested in it. Um, and uh, so, so the reason I got interested in stablecoin is because, uh, you know, I'm, I study economics and I also study game theory by training. And there's a lot of parallels uh, between economics and, uh, and finance and stablecoin. Specifically, we can look at it top down and bottom up. We can look at stablecoins top down. What does it mean? Uh, you know, it's, using the mental model from monetary economics and thinking about how countries defend the peg or how central banks set interest rates and how you know commercial banks like you know JP Morgan Chase or HSBC how they have fractional reserve and these are all valuable lessons that you know for example the founders of Frex the founders of Fay protocol these are all algorithm stable coins protocols they openly talk about this on Twitter. And you know, sometimes I reply to them. They reply to my tweets as well. The other way that's interesting is because it's bottom-up. And if you look at it bottom-up, you need game theory and mechanism design. You know, assume that agents are selfish and everybody you know, cashes out from this um, uh, uh, stablecoin protocol. Basically, there's, there's a bank run. What would happen? 
then again, you can borrow literature, you can borrow theories and mental models from the game theory and mechanism design world. Um, so that's how I got interested in it. But you know, there's also the non-intellectual aspect that makes stablecoin very important. Um, uh, so what I think is, uh, I think we mentioned this concept of Trojan horse, right? Which is basically just a wedge. Um, I think stablecoin is, is exactly the same way. You know, stablecoin is because it's packed to one USD. Users are, people find it a lot more intuitive to use a cryptocurrency that's packed rather than, you know, like Bitcoin or Ethereum that fluctuates a lot, right? So there's real life utility for this. That's number one. And number two, there's valid proposition against status quo, you know, similar to how I explained freight and how, uh, how we think about tokenizing real world assets. Stable coins from first principles, again, very low transaction cost, instant settlement, right? And these are a lot more easier than trying to improve upon the 1980s, 70s infrastructure of Visa, MasterCard as payment rails, or even worse, you know, you get this interbank or international transfer um, uh, system, which is slow and uh, some people work as well, right? Um, so if we just move all the payment rails, payment networks to stable coins, everything's faster and, and cheaper. So that's why I find stablecoin interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just trying to think like where to where to go with this. I think stable coins, there's there's just a, a lot to to unpack, right? They they're they are pegged to to the US dollar. Maybe, maybe we can, or a lot of them, most of them, but the, the biggest ones are pegged to the US yeah. dollars. And there's some some risks, I guess, with that in in like building that. And um approaches we have seen are on the one side things like what tether and usdc do yep. they're like pretty much centralized so they um they have like physical real bank accounts and there's dollars or dollar equivalent um stuff in there that they um back this with and then there's algorithmic ones like um, frax and, and maybe ust uh, and luna and um how do you how do you see how do you see that evolving um especially since what recently happened that you know luna was one of the one of these stable coins that that like came up and i think they had a they had a good approach but recently they've uh, loaded up their treasury and, and and backed and started to back it with with bitcoin and things like that and that for me is um it, it is sort of a signal that maybe algorithmic stable coins don't really work or are uh they all have like this death spiral aspect. So what, how do you, what do you think on, on this? Like where, where will this go between like algorithmic and, and, and um, yeah, really backed stable coins, the dollar backed stable coins. Yeah. So I would actually, I would question your question <laughs> in, a, <laughs> in a very philosophical way. Um, I, I would say that centralized stable coins and decentralized stable coins are fighting for different market share. So, and so rather than viewing them as, com as competitors, I would actually view them as collaborators or peers um, that are trying to grow the stablecoin market and to replace the TreFi equivalent. Um, on the point of fragility or sort of stability of the pack mechanism, I think centralized stablecoins are definitely here to stay. Um, they are, and uh, despite people talk about Tether, you know, I also made a Twitter thread about Tether as well, after a hedge fund shorted 
Tether publicly, I explained the game theory behind it. Um, you know, despite all the hate against Tether, Tether is surprisingly resilient. And, you know, and right now, if Tether fails or depacks significantly, you know, I, I guess more than 60% to 70% of crypto would just collapse. Um, Tether's got really good coverage in non-US countries. Yeah. They work right now. They actually spent more time and energy uh, uh, trying to be compliant with um, with uh, sovereign states and you know work with jurisdictions. Uh, you know they freeze accounts, they freeze wallets, uh, and they do so at a higher profile than Circle. So the way I see it is USDT. That's going to be more widely used in non-US uh, or even non-EU. You can call it emerging countries, right? Sort of this third world country um, market share. USDC is going to be more used in first world countries and also be more integrated with the wider Wall Street uh, TradFi financial system. Um, so these two are here to stay. And then the question is, what's going to be, you know, how will decentralized stablecoins react? And what type of user profile, what type of use cases are they going to serve? Um, and again, as you can tell, I think from this as a you know, very product framework perspective and just treating the stable coins as products ultimately. So I think it depends, you know, you get this uh, and the way we predict how these decentralized stable coins are going to play out depends on the PEC mechanism and the PEC mechanism determines the use case, right? So one very intuitive one, uh, one very intuitive thought is that the MikaDAO stablecoin DAI is over collateralized. So as you can imagine, that serves a different use case, right? That serves for people who try to lever up, right? They want or they want liquidity without selling their initial crypto collateral uh, position. On the other hand, we see Terra or we see Frax, um, which I mean, for algo stablecoin, Terra will be the largest. So let's stick with uh, Terra. And Terra has a different use case, right? Terra has its own layer one uh, run on Cosmos. Um, Terra has some real world use cases. They used to use Terra for um, settlement for a South Korean e-commerce site. Uh, but mostly anymore, Terra, yeah. that's not anymore. Yeah, exactly. So I think most of the energy for Terra is you know, spent on the Anchor protocol, you know, attracting people to deposit and to offer the very attractive 19.5% APY, um, which is, you know, going to slowly go down, but still, still the, you know, the highest um, kind of risk-free rate that you can get uh, in a whole DeFi world. And so USD just becomes this sort of, from what I see, like this liquidity black hole that keeps sucking liquidity out, uh, that's, that keeps sucking liquidity in and tries to deploy these capital into productive uses. Um, so the way I read it is actually, you know, the recent four pool announcement by, by Do Kwan, uh, co uh, collaborating with Frax, that is actually not to increase the utility of Terra, but to increase the, the resilience of Terra. To, it's to make Terra less likely to debug. It's to make Terra stronger, but not more useful. And, and, and that's a distinction. Uh, Can you make. walk us through how that, how that mechanism is achieved? Like how, how do you think that's gonna, yeah, that will achieve this? Sure. Yeah. So, um, the announcement that I mentioned is basically Terra and Frax are setting up a 
uh, pool on curve, which is a uh, AMM, and uh, it's a full pool. So it's a pool made of four stable coins. Uh, it's made of two centralized, so USDC and USDT, Cycle and Tether, plus the two decentralized, uh, Frax and uh, Terra. The outcome for this is that users can basically swap between any of the four stable coins and uh, with very low slippage. So basically think of it as, as this new Forex market, right, in real world um, and TriFi. So the reason why it makes Terra stronger is uh, number one, more people can swap from USDC, USDT, and Frax into Terra. So, and then why would they use Terra? Because they're going to deposit it into Ankle, right? Uh, or they're just going to join the Terra ecosystem as a whole. So this is basically like a bridge from uh, that sucks or that guides non-Terra liquidity to the Terra ecosystem. That's mm -hmm. one way how it. That's one way how it makes it stronger. The other way that makes Terra stronger is uh, it like Terra is just one out of the four stable coins in this pool. And I saw a Twitter thread this morning, someone did the maths. It basically, because of the way Curve works, in order to depack Terra, you need like 4,000X or 40 or 40KX more capital to depack the same amount. So basically make it more resilient because it attracts a lot more capital now. Um, and then obviously, you know, there's also play such as increasing reserve uh, via swapping assets, you know, Terra recently swapped with uh, AVAX to hold it in the treasury. And then they can um, do other stuff with this AVAX. So they can borrow AVAX, they can borrow USDC. Obviously, Terra is not doing this, I think. Uh, no one has, at least it's not public, because Terra, that will be counter the whole philosophy of uh, decentralized stable coins. Uh, but yeah, that's the way that, that the, this kind of four is going to make it stronger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it will, but it will also allow uh, people to exit UST with a high liquidity, right? It will, because it will give them the ability to, to leave UST for, for other options and that in a Definitely. low slippage, high liquidity environment, right? Definitely. And, Definitely. Yeah. So, so then, did you, but do you think, still think like Terra is a algorithmic stable coin or is it now more like a, like a backed version Yeah, so this is where definition goes a bit blurry. I think by definition of the minting and burning mechanism of Terra, uh, which they call it the Seniorage model, uh, correct, correct my pronunciation. Seniorage, yeah. Quite seniorage model. Um, I don't know, maybe that's French. Uh, by, definition, <laughs> by, by definition, it is a, it is a algo stable coin. Um, however, they... However, Terra, there, there's a few twists, right? Terra is also a layer one, and this USD, uh, this UST is a native stablecoin on the chain, which is which can you can use it to pay gas fees, etc. Yeah. So that makes it more, you know, better, higher utility than the um, Ethereum equivalent, which you know it could be Fay or it could be Frax. Um, that's one differentiation. The second differentiation is there's something called reserve which doesn't directly back uh, UST, but it can be used at this sort of, in a market mechanism to buy up or sell um, Terra and Luna 
yeah. are the way they want. So the way I see it is basically just the way I envision it is you can envision LF, LFG, the, the foundation and the whole, basically the protocol designers and founders um, or and the early backers as well, because right, Terra is backed heavily by VCs. I see them oh, yeah, as course, this yeah. ecosystem of central banks yeah. uh, and they are minting money out of thin air. And yeah. uh, if people don't believe in, start to cash out, whatever, then they will prop it up because they have real money to back it up. So it's kind of similar to, you know, how you have uh, in a past pre-fiat system, you have the gold standard, you have gold to back up USD. Um, but, you know, can you actually redeem one USD for gold? Uh, I guess in, in real life, you could, could. But nobody really did it. <laughs> yeah. Nobody really did it. So I guess it's a similar way here. You know, would you redeem one Bitcoin with one USD? Uh, I, I think you can't do it now. And they probably don't want you to do it in the future either. Uh, but they want and, you to And what would happen if you did, right? Exactly. You would exactly. You create this bank run because it, it's not 100% backed. It's like very fractional, you know, I don't know, 12% yep. or so. Yeah. 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 But you know, yeah. the beauty is uh, I've virtually realized there is a, if you want to be a more optimistic um, uh, observation on this is that the 20% deposit is, sorry, the 20% rate that they offer can be seen as a customer acquisition cost. Oh yeah, it's marketing, yeah, purely that, yeah. Exactly. And you know, if you think about comparisons to other protocols or chains, I don't think there has been any other chains that has attracted so much liquidity in such a short amount of time. Yeah. And yeah. so I guess the question for Terra now is, are there going to be enough dApps to retain these users? And, you know, in the Web2 terminology is, you know, Terra nails the, the user acquisition part, but now can they work on user retention, which... Yeah, can they sustain um, this, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Which I have a, which for this question, I have a slightly more pessimistic view than I think most people on crypto Twitter. I think that having DGEM protocols for lending, borrowing, NFTs, marketplaces, swaps, whatever, those are good infrastructure, but those are rather useless, you know, to, to put it bluntly. Um, I'm yeah. very, I'm a real world assets uh, maxi, <laughs> which, uh, yeah. which I believe that, you know, the way that like the, the, the actual way that you're going to retain users is to have utility with the real world and to have like a differentiated uh, utility as well. Uh, which means that you can't get this, you know, you can't participate, you know, for example, you can't, let's say, you can't buy or you can't have exposure to sustainable energy infrastructure unless you go on Ethereum. Then it helps with Ethereum retaining users. Yeah. So what other stable coins are you, are you seeing moving ahead in this real world usage space? Yeah. So I think um, DAI is moving uh, to us. So MikaDAO's DAI is moving towards real world assets. Um, although the way to do it is, um, again, because when we talk about DAI, it's not uh, it's not in the same property or in the same context of stablecoins when we talk about Frax or Terra or USDC. Um, I guess what MakerDAO is basically doing is the right mental model here is that it is a it's becoming a decentralized commercial bank that holds different assets on its balance on his balance sheet yep. um, at the moment is 100% crypto, I think, uh, but they are trying to diversify and hold 
T-bonds, treasury bonds, right? And they're going to hold real-world assets that are more illiquid. Um, and then they're going to issue a stablecoin, uh, one US that, that is redeemable for one USD or packed to one USD. And it's kind of similar to how you just, you basically just own a share in a bank, right? It's like you go to yeah. NYSE and you try to buy a share of JPM, of JP Morgan. But instead of this JP Morgan share fluctuating up and down, you get this JP Morgan share always packed to $1. And what fluctuates is the supply, but not the price. Yeah. And that's yeah. how market cap gets to, uh, gets to move. Um, and it's a different way to see it compared to Terra, where you know, it's really not a money market fund share. You know, it's not redeemable to anything. Uh, I guess it's redeemable to Luna. And you can say, right, Luna is a governance yeah. token. There's this value accrual. Um, but it's different from DAI, right? DAI, you can get your ETH back. Um, so, yeah, in this sense, that's different. Yeah, yeah, to, to a different asset. But now since they're, you know, since they're buying Bitcoin, stuff like that, maybe they, maybe they have that in the future as well. Okay, so they yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. To to wrap it up, kind of where do you see stablecoins going in the next couple of years, and then we can, yeah, I guess finalize this session. Yes, for sure. Uh, so it depends on what types of stablecoins. Um, I think centralized stablecoins are pretty much a done deal um, in terms of their product specification. But in terms of the go-to-market, I think, uh, like I said, I think Tether will definitely double down on emerging markets focused. Yeah. Um, and whether or not they go for a more uh, DeFi for the people angle, that depends because there's, there's also a lot of uh, competitors in their space, right? There's a reserve protocol, which is a stable coin that uh, focuses in Latin America for inflation, for uh, preservation, of yeah, wealth yeah. against inflation. There's also yeah. Celo Network that does mobile first DeFi uh, for emerging markets. So that's a tough market. Um, Circle, I see it gaining more and more of the TradFi market share and bridging TradFi institution money to DeFi. For the algo stables, um, it really depends. So I think there is still theoretical loopholes, uh, theoretical vulnerability for Terra and Frax, right? Just despite how big they are. Um, but whether this theoretical vulnerability actually plays out, I guess we can only test it against like super bear market or another high scale exploit. Uh, yeah. But there are also attempts to build even better algo stables, even more stable stables. Uh, one of them is called gyroscope, which is a type of sort of uh, meta stable coin. You can think of it as a diversified fund that holds different weighting of different crypto assets. Yep. And the weighting readjust itself according to market. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't they haven't launched yet. They are on testnet have some gamified version of it, uh, but yep. it's really interesting. Uh, but I guess in terms of pack mechanisms, um, I guess we are there isn't much innovation uh, on the theoretical side. So I guess we've sort of run out of juices, and you know we've we'll see, there's yeah. so much we can. There's only so much we can copy from TradFi. We just have to think from first principles and really use DeFi's uh, our strengths. Yeah, I guess. And then like the 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 interesting part will be if we'll see more of more stable coins that are not pegged to fiat. Um, yeah, yeah. Because that would be like the uh, the ultimate end game 
um, to move to something like that, right? Like, like reserve, like the one that you said. Yes. Yeah. That is actually a very good point. Uh, we've, we've, I've totally messed up on that, like non-packed USD stable coins. Uh, there's also like re, uh, Reflexa Finance, Rai, yeah. uh, that does that, that aims to be a, yeah. um, uh, packed to an arbitrary number and, you know, be this denominating factor across crypto. Um, I think, I think theoretically it works. Like the pack mechanism, it's vibrant break. They use, you know, they were one of the early protocols to use PID controller to dynamically yep. adjust the, the weighting of assets. Uh, but the problem is it's still like from a user perspective, right? It's still not intuitive. Um, and particularly, I guess, you know, the, the, the most bullish case I would give for non-packed stablecoin is we need packed stablecoin to onboard everybody to crypto. And then once everything is, once everybody get gets comfortable with crypto, then we can move, they can, you know, convert this uh, packed stablecoin into non-packed, and then we get the truly crypto native um, denominated stablecoin. But that's gonna be, you know, we're gonna have to wait until blockchain runs the world. Even the internet hasn't run the world yet. Yeah, yeah, that's a very long way ahead, I guess. And to me, like, I, I think like all these unpegged ones, they're still super unintuitive and, and like difficult and hard to understand, wrap your head around what they actually, how they actually work, right? What, what country they kind of represent with the currency that they create. So, um, yeah, cool. Is there anything you'd like to, you know, um, say that we haven't talked about yet before we wrap it up? Uh, no, I think this is pretty much it. This has been a really good conversation. Cool. Yeah. Likewise. Um, thanks for coming on. Thanks for taking the time and, uh, yeah, cool. I'll, I guess we'll be in touch. Thank you. Stable coin space Cheers. and then the yeah, token valuation space. Thanks, everyone. Yep. Thanks, Jack.